Speaking of sharing life together, we've been walking through uh, the book of John in our series called Sharing Life Like Christ. And so in this series, we've been looking at the specific interactions that Jesus has with specific people throughout the book of John. And so we've seen his, the, the character of Jesus Christ on display in the questions that he asks and the patience that he demonstrates as he interacts with specific people throughout this book. And so we've seen the things that he values, and we've seen um, just the way that he navigates the insecurities of people, the way he navigates their egos, and the way he navigates even their misdirections as he draws them into the grace and truth of God that's revealed in Christ. And so as we take in how he interacted with them then, we're also able to take in the way that he interacts with us now. And so Uh, The same way that Jesus navigated their insecurities and their ego and their misdirection then is the same way that he currently navigates your insecurities and your ego and your misdirection and my ego and my misdirections and my insecurities. This is the way that the living God currently interacts with us now. And so it's easy to get caught up in the way that this world presents Jesus or it's easy to get confused in the way that we think Jesus should be or the way that we think he should operate. Or maybe we've encountered some religious people that have given us the impression of how Jesus acts and is And that's not really who he is or how he is. And so this series is designed to take a look at who he truly is and to take in how he interacts, not only with them then, but us now. Right? And so this, it's been designed, it's about experiencing the true Jesus for who he truly is. And then share the life that we experience in Christ with each other, our city, and beyond. But if you want to share life like Christ with others, you first have to share life in Christ. Like you can't be a conduit of this stuff to other people unless you've experienced it for yourself. Right? We're not just talking about someone that we heard about. We're talking about the one we know and are known by. Right? The living God who meets us where we are and transforms us from the inside out. This is all about the overflow. It's all about beholding Jesus for who he is, experiencing Jesus, being loved by Jesus, and being fully satisfied in Christ alone. And so this morning we're going to look at an interaction that Jesus has with a man who was born blind in John chapter 9. Now, if you know anything about this story, then you know that Jesus miraculously heals this man of his physical blindness. And many people think that that's the end of the story, or at least that's the point of the story. Like, it's a story about someone being physically healed of blindness. And that's cool, right? Like, wow, he was born blind, Jesus healed him, he's not blind anymore. Amen. That's great. But as we've seen over and over and over again, especially in the book of John, when Jesus performs a miracle, it's a demonstration or even a sign that's pointing us to a deeper truth and a deeper need. It's not just about the physical healing. Don't miss that. This world loves to make it about physical healing or what we can get in the now and only now. Right? But Jesus is often if not always, pointing us deeper, okay? In fact, there are seven specific sign miracles in the book of John. 
that John actually records here, okay? Seven very real, they're not metaphors, they're not something that's, they are real signs and miracles that happened, physical miracles that did absolutely happen, okay? Seven of them. The first one was when Jesus turned the water into wine in John chapter 2. The second was when he healed the royal official's son in John chapter 4. And then the third was the healing of the lame man at Bethesda in John chapter 5. Then the fourth was when he fed the 5,000 in John 6. And then the fifth was when he walked on water later in John chapter 6. And then the sixth sign was the one that we're going to see this morning, which is the healing of this man born blind in John chapter 9. And then the seventh is the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. So we got seven, we have seven uh, miracles, and they're all pointing to Jesus being the king of creation. All right, there are all these physical miracles that are pointing us to our deeper spiritual need and that Jesus is the true king and he's come to bring about a new creation. That's what it's all pointing us to. In fact, the most significant miracle of all isn't even a part of that list of seven. There's an eighth miracle. And this eighth miracle is actually the ultimate sign which is Christ's resurrection from the dead that we're going to see in John 20. It's going to be a good Easter, right? That's where we're going to be in, in, on Easter Sunday. But what I want you to see this morning is that we're essentially given seven signs of creative work that's pointing us to the full restoration or the full peace or the, the wholeness or the, the Hebrew word is the shalom, Right, like, like a full seven-day week symbolizing recreation and restoration. That's what we're seeing here. And then we get an eighth sign that's pointing to something even beyond itself. An eighth sign, an eighth day, so to speak, that points us to an entirely new creation altogether. And that sign is the resurrection. So John 20 is the actual account of the resurrection, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. But just after the resurrection takes place, John 20, verse 30 and 31 says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is the point of it all. There, was ton, there were tons of things that Jesus did, lots of miracles, lots of signs, but he's given every single sign and every single miracle that is in this book is all pointing beyond itself to the fact that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to recreate everything. And every one of these physical signs is pointing to something deeper, a deeper spiritual need and a deeper spiritual reality of the coming kingdom, which he's inaugurating. That's what this is all speaking to. And so as we dive into this interaction between Jesus and the man born blind here in John chapter 9, I want to make sure that we don't miss the point and only get caught up in the physical miracle. Okay? Like, I want you to see that there's a lot more going on in this passage than just his physical eyes being opened. Like, yes, his physical eyes are opened. That's awesome! healed before that's a made greater it's pointing us to the fully physical and spiritual new creation 
See, God cares about our physical well-being, amen? He does. But too often, we stop there and we miss the deeper truth that it's pointing to, and we miss what he's doing in the midst of our lives right now. So this morning, we're going to let the Spirit of God open our spiritual eyes to see that Jesus gives this man both physically new eyes and spiritually new eyes. And although his physical sight is received almost instantly, his spiritual sight comes gradually through a process, which is often the way it works, right? Like if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you know that he's continually opening your eyes to new and more glorious things about his character and his word and who he is. It's a never-ending, always inward and upward journey forevermore, as C.S. Lewis put it, into the glory of God. And that doesn't even end when we see him face to face or even in the new kingdom and new creation. Guys, he is infinitely glorious. Amen? So this is just the beginning of the journey. When we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining like the sun, we'll have no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. You could call, you could, 10 billion years. It's going to be awesome. And in so many ways, it already is. So this is the way that he does this. And he's opening our eyes to his glory. And this is what this process, say process, that characterizes the Christian walk. Like we're such an instantaneous culture. We tend to want everything right now, right now. Give it to me right now. And then we can't see past the immediate thing we want. But we're often blind then to the powerful process, say process, of sanctification or spiritual maturity that God is doing in and through us and around us, which always takes time. And so we're all in a process, no matter where you're at or, or, or with Jesus or, or where you're at with your walk. The fact is that if you are here or if you're joining us online, or listening to this later, like that is merely proof that whether you acknowledge it or not, you're in the process. And he's calling you. Look, throughout this series, we've talked about the specific questions God asks people. Like the first question was way back in Genesis, after the first disobedience and sin in the Garden of Eden. And God asked, Where are you? Right? It's a reflective question. He wants you to ponder it. Think about it. Where are you? Like, what is your condition? Take inventory of yourself. Where are you in your relationship with God and more specifically with Jesus? Then in John chapter 1, Jesus asks his first disciples, what are you seeking? Again, reflective question, right? What are your motives in life right now? Why are you even here? Like, what are you really after and why? What or who is it that you're looking for, to for fulfillment? Who are you looking to for your affirmation? What are you looking to for your affirmation and ultimately your salvation? And if you don't get it, you lose your mind, flip out, fall into despair. And then in John 5, we hear him ask the, the lame man beside the pool at Bethesda, do you want to be healed? Do you even want healing? Or, or have you seen your chains and idols of comfort so 
Have they, have they gripped you so much with despair and victimization and lies that you've become so familiar that you'd rather wallow in those lies than face the truth and stand in the grace and truth of who Jesus is and the salvation and freedom he brings? Because Jesus, when he confronts us, he doesn't always do it comfortably. Especially if your sin is that of seeking comfort in things other than him. If that's the case, he's probably going to make you uncomfortable. But it's the best thing ever for you. So this morning, we're going to see that all three of those questions are at work in the healing of this man born blind. And through this healing and his testimony, all three questions are presented to everyone who hears about it, including you and including me. And so here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. Our walk with Christ is not by physical sight, but by faith. Our walk with Christ is not by physical sight, but by faith. This is what I mean by that. To set your spiritual eyes on Jesus. Behold him in spirit and truth and let that inform how you process the world around you. We so often get this backwards. Too often we depend on our physical sight to inform our faith. As if what we see in this world is more substantial than the truths of the gospel or his word. But we need to learn that our sight doesn't inform our faith. Our faith informs what we see. Like This is a major part of what spiritual maturity and sanctification uh, looks like. This is what this process is like. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 through 18, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, that which we can see, right? But our inner self is being renewed day by day. He wants them to see this reality. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Like you don't get it. You don't understand. You don't know why things are happening. But you trust him because you know he's good. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, this is a continual process of learning to trust in Christ for how we process the world around us in spirit and in truth. It's a process that requires a very real trust that God's doing things in you and through you, and even things that you can't simply even see or fully understand yet. It's not illogical or ignorant. Hear me. It's not blind faith. That's not Christianity. Blind faith is not a Christian thing. That's a world thing, okay? It's the opposite. In fact, it's full of evidence, and it's substantiated by the very essence of truth itself, which is Jesus Christ. He is the highest reality of all things. Amen? So remember this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen right? So the reason people deny Christ isn't because they don't have enough information. It's because Romans 1 says that they have suppressed the truth for a lie. They ignore, twist, and resist the information that they've been given. It's not that they don't have enough evidence. It's that they suppress the evidence that they've been given. And so by doing so, they become blind to the truth that's right in front of their faces. Always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And if that doesn't characterize society today, I don't know what does. 
right? But this morning, we're going to see the grace of God on display as he brings sight to the blind. So let's walk through John uh, 9, verse 1 through 41. We're going to roll through this. And as we do, I want to let the Spirit of God open your eyes to five things that Jesus provides spiritual eyes for us to see. The first thing is that Jesus provides you with eyes to see that there is more going on than you can physically see or fully comprehend. There's more going on. Two, Jesus provides you with eyes to see your new identity and great commission. Three, Jesus provides you with eyes to see in spirit and in truth. Four, Jesus provides you with eyes to see himself and finally, five, Jesus provides you with eyes to see your spiritual blind spots. All right. So again, the first thing Jesus gives us eyes to see is that there's more going on than you can physically see or even comprehend. So John 9, verse 1. Here we go. Let's dive in. As he passed by, so he's passing by, and he sees a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now try to imagine, real quick, try to imagine what it would have been like to be blind from birth. Okay? It doesn't say he became blind. He was blind from birth. He was born blind. He can't even comprehend what it means to see. Like when people talk about beauty or color, or like how would you even have any comprehension of what that's like? Like, he would have nothing to even compare it to. Like, when people talk about the way that light shimmers off the water or, or like, a sunrise or, or the brilliance of how patterns contrast in art or clothing or even landscapes, like the regal nature even of purple, right, that would have been totally lost on him. Like, the way the pink and the blue was, like, colliding in the slides while we were seeing How do you describe that to someone that has no idea what blue or purple even is? Like, all of that, like, it's beautiful. You would have no comprehension of what any of it means. Sight was in itself an entirely foreign experience for him. And I want you to see that in many ways, this is what it's like to be spiritually blind to life in Christ also. See, there's a sense in every human heart that there's something more to this life. And I want you to know that Guys, God wants to, no matter where you are in this process, he wants to continually open your eyes. Like, I can't wait for his return, man. Like, how many colors can we not see? That's going to be awesome. Right? Like, there is a, there is a like, level up moment in this process of sanctification and knowing him more and seeing with both physical and spiritual eyes. And so in, in all of humanity, there's this sense in every human heart that there's something more to this life. Like something, or really even someone, every human heart yearns and longs for, because we were created for way more. Something that's never fully satisfied in this world or by this world. You see it in every genuine expression of the human soul, whether it's poetry or song or art or books or movies. Like That unsatisfied longing is there. It's that search for the, the ultimate soulmate or the, the hero who has what it takes or, or you know, even just that you have what it takes, that you're good enough, that you have been accepted. And these stories that go from rags to riches and then now, dun -dun -dun -dun, he's there. And then in real life, those dun -dun 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 people end up suicidal and depressed. 
Like we look for this stuff in relationships or careers or status or money or power, and yet none of it fully satisfies. It's all just a counterfeit attempt at chasing the rainbow that's always just out of reach. And even the greatest experiences in this life are ultimately unsatisfying. Like there's this sense that there's got to be more. It's like waking up on Christmas morning and being like, oh, it's here. Wait, this is it? And then the reason for that is because there is more. There is more. And Jesus has come to open our eyes to the all-satisfying, abundant life that is only found in him, and it can begin even now. In fact, the rainbow, in and of itself, in Scripture, is given to us as a promise and a sign that's designed to point us to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Go back and read the story of Noah, then come talk to me. It's awesome. Because all the rainbow, like all through, or excuse me, although that rainbow is just out of reach, the love of God in Christ has come down to you and is available to you and is accessible to you even now. But without him, we're just groping around in the dark looking for something or someone to turn the lights on and blow away the darkness and storms. For the man born blind, he knows he's blind, but he doesn't know what that even really means or how he could until he experiences sight. Right? For him, there would have been a sense of restlessness or, or, or of longing, and yet there's this even uncertainty of even knowing what that is. And in some ways, even acknowledging that your own blindness is real, that's the first step in receiving sight. It's the revelation that something is, is in fact missing. It's the acknowledgement that everything is not fine, and you are in fact need of, in need of healing. Luke 5, verse 31 and 32, Jesus says this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The truth is we're all sick. We're all blind and in the dark. And Jesus is the only one who can heal us and give us sight because he is himself the light of the world. Maybe this morning, this is where you are. Like you recognize something is missing, but you're looking for it everywhere and in everything but Jesus and I want to encourage you that all of that can change this, this morning. So back to the man in this passage. Jesus and his disciples are passing by him. And as they do, this man born blind would have had a keen ear that's honing in on their conversation. And as he listened in, he would have realized that they were talking about him. Like you would have heard the disciples making this huge assumption about his condition that everyone else had assumed also. Maybe he himself assumed it. They assumed that his blindness is the direct result of his own sin or the sin of his parents. This would have been a, an assumption that the entire society had made about his condition. And it would, have made, it would have been a question that even the man who was born blind struggled with over and over and over again. Like, there would have been so much shame connected to this question for this man. And by now, he would have been giving his entire attention to that conversation. His ears would have definitely perked up as they ask, while they pass by, who sinned, this man or his parents? But the answer that this great rabbi gives to this question of who sinned would have been like a flood of relief and also expectation. 
Look at this, verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. You can just feel him. Really? But that the works of God might be displayed in him, which is just like expectations are building in him. Like, what does that mean? We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. So if you're this man, you're going to be thinking, what works? What, what, what are you about to do? And you would have been thinking, wait, who sent you? Who is it that sent Jesus? And he says, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So at this point, Jesus has not passed him by. He stops. He turns. He mercifully turns towards him. And he's now this man, this beggar. He's now the focus of Christ's attention and the topic of conversation. And then things start to get really weird. (laughs) Verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Now, like, you got to think, if you're this man, you're blind, all you can do is hear. Like, you got to be thinking, like, what's he doing? Like, guys, what's happening? These, these, these slurping noises are strange. Right? Like, there's this picture of Jesus being very intentional and almost kneading these mud pies. Right? Like, well, you would knead bread, you know? Like, there's this sense where he's working on this intentionally. And the sounds would have been pretty odd to everybody. And even the disciples that can see are probably thinking, this is odd, right? Like, what is happening? And then it gets even more weird when this man suddenly feels like goopy slop on his face as Jesus starts rubbing it in his eyes, right? As it says, then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. Say sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anybody rub saliva-soaked mud in your eyes. I personally have not. Not something I'm looking forward to. Seems like it would be a very weird thing, right? And it would have. Like, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is a pretty uncomfortable scenario for everybody involved, right? And then he tells him to go to this pool of Siloam and wash. And the man born blind takes the step of faith and trust and obedience in a very weird scenario. And suddenly he has this experience that was beyond all he could have ever asked or imagined according to the power at work within him. He could see. He doesn't even know what seeing is and yet it's happening. Like what is this thing that's happening? Like, I envision, him, I envision him trying to, like, get the mud and water and even probably a lot of tears out of his eyes as his entire being is just flooded with light and life and color and, 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 and just beauty. He didn't even know what beauty was. Like, this would have been overwhelming. He was experiencing this amazing grace that's more than he could have ever imagined or comprehended at the time. He's experiencing a sign, even, that points to a new creation that goes way beyond his experience. See, he's experiencing then something that's normal for us at all times. Think about that. Just so will it be when we experience the new creation. How cool is that? And so he gives him a recreated 
sight. He's experiencing recreation and restoration. In fact, Genesis 2-7 says that God created Adam from the dust of the ground. And so here in John 9, Jesus is engaging in this creative act to bring restoration and wholeness to this man to rest or shalom on the day of rest in full wholeness. Because it was a Sabbath day. Jesus works that this, this man might rest. How cool is this? But as time goes on, it becomes clear that not only are his physical eyes opened, so are his spiritual eyes, which leads me to the second point. Jesus provides you with eyes to see your new identity and great commission. Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. Like, does he have a twin going around? We don't know. Like he, but then he says... It says that he kept saying, I am the man. He says this over and over again, I am the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. All he knows is that it's the man called Jesus. That's all he's got. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Now I want you to notice that the testimony of what Jesus has done for him compels everyone around this man to come and see Jesus. They want to know who it is that has done this stuff in his life. And they, and they would, but they don't know where he is. The man doesn't know where he is. All he knows is his name is Jesus. He knows the name, and there's power in the name of Jesus. Amen? So all he knows is that what we will hear in a bit is that he was once blind, but now he can see. And it was the man called Jesus who gave him his sight. But people don't believe him. This is often the case, right? Like this is what happens when we first begin to see Jesus for who he is and start telling people about what he's done for us. Often what happens? They don't believe. Maybe they're curious, but they may think it's just a phase, right? Or, or it's something he's going to grow out of, or you're not really serious about it. But I want you to see that the man's response here isn't about how, like, how much he's going to prove that he can see to them, or how good he is at making himself see better to prove them wrong. That's not what it's about. It's not about his ability to prove everybody wrong. It's simply about his new identity in Christ. Watch this. His response is, the way he responds is actually a way of identifying with Jesus. He doesn't even know it. He doesn't even realize it. There's so much more going on in this man's life right now than he can even comprehend. He says, I am the man. I am the man. In the Greek, it's the phrase ego aimi. And it's a phrase that Jesus uses seven times, precisely seven times throughout the book of John as a way to subtly identify himself as the great I am which is the name that God Almighty uses when revealing himself to Moses in the Old Testament. And so now the way that this formerly blind man uses this phrase is different from the way that Jesus uses it, right? For sure, this, he is not God. He is not the great I am. However, there is a clear identity shift happening here. It gets better. And rem remember I said before that there's a lot happening here that he does not even understand. In fact, earlier when Jesus anointed his eyes, I want you to see that the word Christ literally means anointed one. 
So he's been anointed by the anointed one. That's intentional. And then he's told to wash in the pool called Siloam, which means sent. So he's been anointed by the anointed one, and he's been sent by, as we saw in verse 4, the one sent of God. Again, all these phrases are used often throughout this gospel to describe who Jesus is. And if you have eyes to see it, there are these overtones all over this of identity in Christ. It's clear that this man is beginning to operate in his new identity. As a new creation, the old has gone and the new has come. It's such a dramatic shift even that his friends and neighbors don't even recognize him. (laughs) And yet he's still in the process. Like he doesn't even really know who Jesus is yet, but that doesn't stop him from testifying to what he does know, which is I was blind and now I see. This is what Jesus has done for me. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have all the answers, but come see the one who does. Like he's still trying to figure out what's going on. And what's continuing to happen, and yet he's already operating as one immersed in his commission. He's operating as one sent by God as he simply invites his friends and neighbors into the journey with him. I want you to see this, guys. He does not wait until he has the answers. He shares what he knows. The man called Jesus has changed me. I want this to encourage you. Some of you think you've got to have all the answers before you start telling people about what Jesus has done for you. You don't need a seminary degree. Okay? All that's actually just your pride. The truth is, is that you think that you have to be the one to convince people and win all of the arguments. That's what's keeping you from testifying. Instead of just being a witness who's introducing others to the one who's redeemed you. Like, don't ignore your commission. Go and tell and share and invite and engage and embrace and introduce. Testify to what the Lord has done and is doing in your life and invite others to join you in the process, no matter where you are in that process. You're not making disciples of yourself. You're making disciples of Jesus. You and I are, like this man, participating in a much larger meta-narrative of redemption that's playing out all around us. At this point, all this man knows is that the man called Jesus has given him eyes to see. But the way that he did it not only identified this man with Jesus, but also initiated and commissioned him as one sent of the Lord. Look at this. Remember, Jesus has just washed, um, or I'm sorry, yeah, Jesus has just, um, he was just talking about how he is the light of the world, right? So he's just said, And as he turns towards this blind man in deep darkness, it sounds a lot like the messianic prophecies of Isaiah uh, 8 and 9, which talks about a people in distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish and thick darkness. All right? Go with me here. All right? Lean in, because I'm going to take you on a little, like, this is kind of interesting. All right? But it's going to come together. Remember the prophecy you hear a lot around Christmas time? Isaiah 9, 2, right? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That's a prophecy of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. It's pointing to basically Christ's coming and what he would do. And so the light that they've seen is emanating from this prince of peace in this prophecy who's sitting on the throne of David. This is what Isaiah 9, verse 6 through 7 is talking about. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Mighty God. His, this is God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All of those verses are talking about what the Messiah would do and who he would be. But here's what I want you to see. Just before all of those prophecies in Isaiah 9, talking about like how light in the dark, that's, it's talking about all of that there. Isaiah 8 verse 6 tells us, watch this, that the people that God chose to be his people had refused the waters of Shiloh. Okay? That's another word for Siloam. And it, they both mean sent. In other words, God's chosen people had rejected and refused their commission. They refused to drink from the waters of Shiloh or Siloam. God had called these people in the Old Testament and they rejected it. They focused on themselves and their own agendas. So God's people in the Old Testament refused their commission and they refused to drink from the waters of their mission as those sent of God. And as a result, they began to walk in deep darkness. And Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would come and shine a great light on them and he would be that great light and they would see it. And so here we have a man blind from birth, walking in thick darkness. And upon him, Jesus, the light of the world, has shone, and he has seen him. Not only that, he obediently then washes in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. He immerses himself in the commission that God's given him. He's not rejected his purpose and commission. He's become totally immersed in it, both in his identity in Christ and his purpose from Christ. Peter Lightheart is a theologian. He put it like this, just so you know I'm not making all this stuff up. The blind man is being healed by the sent one in the pool of sending and thereby becomes one sent, a type of an apostle. He is plunged into the pool, sent by the sent one, or, sorry, by the one sent, immersed in the sent one's sending. You got it? You got all that? Got it figured out? Yeah, neither did this blind man. I want to show you the backdrop. Like, if that's confusing, rein back in. If you're like, all that stuff, like, he's talking about the Old Testament, he's talking about Messiah, I'm not sure what does Messiah mean. Like, I, is that, like, I don't get it. I don't know what's happening. You lost me. Rain it in. I'm trying to show you that there's more going on than what you can see. All that man knows is I was blind and now I can see. Jesus told me to do this. I'm doing it. And as he does, he identifies even with him in it. And he's a part of something way bigger. Look at verse 13. They brought uh, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Which is significant because there was a human tradition here that said that you weren't allowed to do that kneading thing on the Sabbath. Like kneading dough, but it just says knead. You weren't doing that. So Jesus intentionally is like, I mean, he could have just been like, eyes open. Eyes are open. He's, but he chose to heal him in a way that would provoke the man-made traditions. 
That's a, that's a baller Jesus move. <laughs> so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Now I want you to notice that the spiritual progression is happening here. His eyes are opening. Like just a few verses ago, he simply only knew that he was the man called Jesus. But now here he confesses that Jesus is a prophet. Like maybe even a prophet greater than Elisha. Because there's an allusion here in 2 2 Kings 5 where Elisha tells Naaman to go and wash in the Jordan River and he would be healed of his leprosy. And when he did, he was. Elisha was a great prophet. Maybe this is all starting to click for the blind man. Or I should say the man formerly known as blind. Get it? Either way, it's clear that not only are his physical eyes opened, his spiritual eyes are beginning to see more and more as well. He's not just the man called Jesus now. He realizes he is a prophet. Even a greater prophet than Elisha. And we now know that he is the greater Elisha. He's greater than them all. Point three, look at this. Jesus provides you with eyes to see in spirit and in truth. Look at verse 18. So the Jews did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, which means rejected from their society. And therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Now there's a lot there about how the shame Uh, of this circumstance has gripped this family with the fear of man. Remember, their culture assumed that it was probably their sinfulness that resulted in the child's blindness. And so their entire life would have been gripped by a desire to not be rejected or to be affirmed by these people. Major fear of man stuff happening here. But there's also an affirmation going on here also. Like this formerly blind man is suddenly catapulted onto the center stage. He goes from unclean and dismissed as a beggar to a man qualified to speak amongst his people for himself, all because of what Jesus has done for him. Look at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He's like, I don't know about him being a sinner. All I know, I was blind, now I see. Like, that's it. And how bad do you want to sing Amazing Grace right now? Like, it's so good. And and this is him giving glory to God, right? Like, on that one, he agrees. So they said to him, verse 26, What did he do to you? 
How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> now there's a boldness welling up in him. Right? Verse 28. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Notice that he knows that. This is part of his story. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Guys, there's so much happening here, but one thing is clear. His spiritual eyes are opening up more and more, and he sees right through their religious, pretentious posturing. He's, he's, he isn't pressured by the show of their grandeur and intimidation. He sees right through it and recognizes their incoherent hypocrisy. He's not intimidated by their robes and all the royal stuff, right? He's still trying to figure out if that's like, is that purple? Is that purple? Is that blue or purple? He's not caught up in all this stuff. He's like, my eyes are open. This is awesome, right? He doesn't have a care in the world, He's calm and he's cool and he's collected and he's reasonable and he speaks in both spirit and truth because he's had his eyes opened. And the only response that they can give him is an insult. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out, meaning out of the synagogue, meaning rejection from their society. I want you to notice that in their outrage, though, they also acknowledged that he was, in fact, born blind. By saying you were born in utter sin, they were referencing the fact that you were born blind, and thereby they're acknowledging the power of the miracle and logically affirming Jesus' legitimacy as a healer. They don't even know it. They're so blind that they can't even see that they've just acknowledged that he truly was healed by Jesus. But they cast him out of the synagogue because, not because he was trying to teach them. He wasn't. He was simply testifying. They're not rejecting his doctrine because they can't. All they can do is reject his testimony, even though they acknowledge that it's true. The whole thing is just a giant indictment upon themselves and their own blindness. They point to him and say, you were born in utter sin as if they weren't. The truth is we all are born blind and we need the eyes, our spiritual eyes to be opened. And yet, it seems that this formerly blind man has no desire to identify with these guys anyway. Like he doesn't need to be accepted and affirmed by them. He senses that he's already been accepted and affirmed by God himself through what Christ has done. And his spiritual eyes continue to open. Like this is the gospel, Right? Like that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserved to die and he conquered sin and death in the grave by paving the way to eternal life that starts now through the resurrection. It starts now when we place our hope and our faith in what Christ has done for us at the cross and through his resurrection. We have this relationship with God Almighty. We're filled with his spirit 
And He begins to continually open our eyes to the glory and the truths of who He is and open our eyes to His Word as He's continually renewing and creating us, recreating us as new creations in Christ Jesus. This is the path. This is the way. Point four, Jesus provides you with eyes to see Himself. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast Him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? I love that he's like, he hears about it, and he goes looking for him, and he finds him. It's almost like a grin on his face. Do you believe in the Son of Man? There's so much this guy doesn't know, but there is, this is a clear, a, a clear reference to Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, which talks about a divine figure who would inherit an everlasting dominion with the Most High God himself, even as God himself. And so this man, it's clear that this man understands that, and he answers in verse 36, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? So he's looking forward to this son of man title guy coming. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This is as as radical as it sounds. Like he's beholding the king of glory right in front of him, both with his physical eyes and his spiritual eyes. They're open to him, and he worships Jesus as God. This is the only place in the book of John where someone worships Jesus other than after the resurrection. We see that they worship him after the resurrection. Thomas recognizes this is God in the flesh. But before that takes place, this is the only time that it happens. This blind beggar who's now given eyes sees that this is God in our midst. And he worships him and Jesus receives it. So see the spiritual progression of his eyes being opened. He was simply to him the man called Jesus. And then he realizes he's not just the man. He's, and he's even much more than just a prophet. He is the title, the son of man. He's God in the flesh. And this formerly blind man is now beholding the king of glory. And as he does, he's being rooted and grounded in love. And he's given the strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God in Christ, which surpasses knowledge and goes way beyond what we can even fathom. Because the very fullness of God himself is right in front of him. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the very fullness of God we have access to that not only can be in front of you, but within you through his spirit. And I can promise you this guy's not thinking about what he's missing out on in the synagogue. (laughs) Like he's content to identify with Jesus and to testify then on his behalf. Finally, last point, number five. Jesus provides you with eyes to see your spiritual blind spots. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now some of the Pharisees near him heard these things. Notice the tables have switched, right? The blind man was on the side of the road overhearing a conversation now with the Pharisees who are in the blind position. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? Verse 41, Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, 
your guilt remains. Now, he's not saying that they'd be excused from their sin if they were blind. He's saying that if they were blind, they would recognize that they needed healing and needed to be able to see, and that he is merciful and gracious enough to provide that sight. But in their arrogance, they believe that they don't need any healing. And again, Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy. So if you don't realize you're sick, you won't realize you need a doctor. If you think you got it all together, then you're not going to have any need for Jesus. This is why a lot of people get rid of the cross. This is why the cross is a stumbling block to people. Because if you don't need grace, if you don't need forgiveness, if hell's not a thing, what's the cross for? Right? The cross is where he paid it all for us. This is where he put what we deserved. He took what we deserved on himself. It's both justice and mercy extended to us in grace. But in their arrogance, they believe they don't need any healing. Now, you might think this only applies to those who haven't received Jesus as Lord and Savior. And while it definitely does apply to that, it doesn't end there. As I've said before, this process of spiritual maturity or sanctification continues long after the point of belief. Like, if you think that this is all about just getting out of hell because you prayed a prayer, you've missed the point of Christianity and salvation entirely. And if that's you, I've got great news for you. Because they're so much more. I pray that you lean in and you begin to crave those spiritual colors and that life becomes just radiant with the love and the glory of God and that your eyes, your spiritual eyes inform all that you see and that you are drawn closer to him as Lord and Savior. In fact, there's a a helpful tool called the Engel Scale. Anybody ever heard of this before? The Engel Scale, if you were in the first service, you did. You don't count. So there's a scale called the Engel scale. And, and I want you to imagine, because I don't have a whiteboard up here, all right? But just go with me. So pay attention here. The Engel scale, let's pretend like there's like a negative 10 right here, okay? So we're going to go from negative 10 to like positive 10, all right? Negative 10, and then negative 9, negative 8, negative 7. You get the idea. And then like 0, and then, you know, positive 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, right? Um, so imagine that right here, okay? So... This is basically what the Engel scale is, and it's a picture of where we are in our relationship with God or in Christ, right? And so negative 10 maybe represents like hostility towards God. Like you don't even know about the gospel. You don't even know the name of Jesus. You're just in a situation where you're just totally lost and resentful and hostile towards anything of God. You're in a rejected, rebellious state. That would be like negative 10. Right? And then maybe negative nine is that maybe you, you are starting to understand the principles of the gospel, but you're still a little hostile. Maybe negative eight is that you have some people witnessing to you, and maybe you're starting to come around, and you're a little less negative or hostile. You're more positive, but you're just trying to figure it out. And then maybe like negative seven is you're try- you've come to a comprehension of what it means, and you're realizing grace is awesome, but you're, so you're just starting to get like you're positive towards it, but you haven't surrendered to him as Lord and Savior. And so then maybe negative five, negative four, negative three, somewhere in there, you're in a situation where you're kind of like, okay, I'm recognizing these things, uh, and I actually am starting to believe that it's true, but man, I like my sin. 
Maybe you're just like, man, I don't want to get rid of this stuff. This is where I've run for my salvation and affirmation. This is where my identity has been, and I don't want to give this up. So you're at a point at which you're counting the costs of following Jesus. And you're beholding him, and you're wondering, is he truly all-satisfying? Or should I continue finding my worth in these things or these people? This is a big decision. Can I go out on a limb here and say Jesus is worth it all? That he is truly the only all-satisfying thing? And I want to encourage you to take that step of faith and and say, God, I believe Help my unbelief. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're at that like negative one. Zero would be salvation. Zero would be born again. Zero would be the confession, repentant, and declaration of belief saying, God, I'm in. I don't have it all figured out. There's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, infinity of a progression for me to grow in Christ for eternity, forevermore, higher up and deeper into the glory of God. But right now, I'm just saying, Lord, I trust you and I believe you. And then maybe one, what's your next step? Maybe one is just joining with a community of believers. Maybe the gospel community of, of, of faithful covenant people that are looking to each other and pointing one another to Jesus and beholding him and saying, let's take these steps together. Maybe you're at negative four. And you're trying to figure this whole thing out. Maybe you're just like, I just bought a Bible because I'm like, I don't know, maybe I should probably read this stuff. And you're like, maybe you got a roommate or a coworker or a best friend or something. And you're like, hey, what do you think about Jesus? I don't know what to think about Jesus. Maybe he's just the man Jesus to you at that point. You know what? You can still operate in your commission. Invite them on the journey with you. You're not introducing them to yourself. You're introducing them to King Jesus. Walk through this with me. All the way through the process. Whether you're, no matter where you are, you can operate in that commission. Come to church with me. Join a community group with me. Let's figure this thing out together. Or maybe you're at like five over here. Maybe you're a baptized believer. Maybe you've been walking in this and you were start, you've been reading God's word for a while. And you're realizing, I have been trying to be perfect I have been trying to convince everyone and present myself as the one with all the answers instead of just inviting people into the process of sanctification and or salvation with me. If that's you, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to open your eyes to what your next step might be this morning. Because this is the question he's asking you. Where are you? Where are you this morning? These are the questions he asks us that catalyze spiritual growth and the spiritual opening of our eyes to our circumstances. Where are you? What's your condition? Do you have blind spots in your life? What are you seeking? Is it Jesus or are you looking elsewhere to find fulfillment and satisfaction? Finally, do you want to be healed? Do you want to move forward in the process? See, everybody has a next step. The next step may be salvation or that next step may simply be realizing you're blind to some sin in your life. And you need the light of the world to expose it and expel it. When that happens, I want you to be encouraged and not discouraged. Because if that happens, it means you're drawing closer to the light, not further away. A lot of times when he exposes sin in our life, we're like, oh, I'm such, I'm like way down here. Nope. It means he loves you and you're in the process. Amen? And so, wherever you are, 
you have a next step. We all do. And part of sharing life with one another in our city is helping one another take that next step. And so there's really, honestly, there's a sixth thing that Jesus gives us eyes to see, and that's that next step. What is it? Psalm 119, 105, one of my favorite passages. says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Guys, it's not a flashlight. They weren't invented back then. It's a lantern. You know what that means? It's the very next step. We're so often focused way out there, and he's going, what's your next step? Right? It's a walk of faith, not sight. And that faith informs our sight as we walk according to the unseen, not just the seen. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord, like, what are my blind spots? Maybe, maybe there's, you've got some insecurities or some anxieties or some control that you're holding on to and you haven't fully relinquished it to the Lord and surrendered to him and you're saying, God, show me my blind spots. Show me what I need this morning. Maybe those, those blind spots are affecting your marriage. Maybe those blind spots are affecting your relationships at work. You can be at positive like 20 and still have major blind spots of sin. This is part of what community does as we walk in grace together and realize none of us have arrived. So we walk in this grace and we point one another to Jesus. You know, it's like having a good friend, you know, when it's like you got something on your face, you can't see it, and your friend's like, hey man, you got something right there. You're like, oh. It's like I'm confessing I got something on my face and I'm repenting of walking around with it and now I'm walking in belief without it. Does that make sense? That's how it is with sin. And this is community. And this is what we do. And this is life in in Christ. Maybe your next step is baptism. Maybe your next step is communion. Maybe your next step is joining the church. Maybe your next step is buying a Bible. ESV study Bible. Go for it. It's fantastic. Maybe your next step is just simply praying to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray.